0: I'll be reading from Habakkuk uh, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 9 through 14 from NIV version. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant, never at rest. Because he is as greedy as a grave, and like death, is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations, and takes captive all the peoples. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, sending his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forth. Forfeiting your life, the stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea.
1: Good morning again. Um, I really like Habakkuk. This is gonna be fun. Before uh, I do this, I have to invite Brian up again. We did this first service, but his wife and his mom's here, so it's got to be done again. <laughs> uh, Brian's been a good friend of mine for a long, long time, and uh. As we're looking at the schedule, um, Brian joked with me, he's like, they'll just let anyone up front, won't they? Cool. We've got pictures of us when we're, you know, 15 and, you know, zit-faced and the whole deal. Um, But I didn't call Brian up for that. I called Brian up because it's his birthday today, and so we need to sing happy birthday. So he's the worship leader, but I'm going to lead you in a song of happy birthday to Brian, so... What? I'm not going to play guitar. He, he, he's not playing guitar for us. Thank you.
0: <laughs>
1: so sing with me. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Brian. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thanks, <buddy. laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> I'm Love you, man. Get it back, Excellent. Brian just promised to get me back, so I'm looking out for that. (laughs) Woe to me, like woe to the Babylonians here in Habakkuk too, right? So we're in the book of Habakkuk, second chapter today. Uh, Last week, Habakkuk 1, Dad walked us through Habakkuk 1, where it's this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk goes to God, and he's like, Why are you allowing all this evil to persist in Judah. Why, why do you let this evil happen? And God's like, you're right. I should do something about that. So I'm going to send the evil, violent, terrible Babylonians and they're going to wipe out your entire way of life. They're going to destroy the temple, they're going to carry off your people, and they're going to kill your leaders. And Habakkuk goes, uh, what? That would be, Dad pointed this out last week, that would be like us praying to God and saying, God, our land is evil. We have all kinds of evil going on in America and God saying, you're right, I'm going to send Al-Qaeda to come and totally wipe out your leadership, carry you off, and uh, your entire way of life will be gone. To, the, to us, that's unthinkable. That's the kind of unthinkability, that, I'm making up words now, but um, that's, that's the kind of thing that Habakkuk is facing. That's completely unthinkable to him. He can't imagine how that could be true. And how the God that he knows who loves Israel and chose Israel would allow that, in fact, would cause that to happen. So when we come to Habakkuk 2, Habakkuk is waiting. He's like, I don't get it, God. I don't understand what you're doing. But I am going to face you and bring my questions to you, he says. And it's interesting, he's expecting to be reproved. In my um, translation, It says, verse 1, I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. He's expecting to be taught something here. He's expecting that his vision of God is not big enough. So when we get to chapter 2, Habakkuk knows that he needs an expanded vision of God. And so that's where Dad led us last week. He said, our vision of God is too small. Your God is too small. My God is too small. We, We don't see God as he really is in all his bigness so that's where we begin in chapter 2 and the rest of chapter 2 is God's response and boy does he respond he says yeah I will I will judge Babylon don't worry about that it's coming verses 2 and 3 yeah it's definitely coming Though it it may take a little longer than you expect, judgment on Babylon is coming too. It's not just on Israel. Babylon will be judged. Which tells us a couple things. One, God is bigger than the Babylonians. I guess, in theory, we know that, right? But God is bigger, if Al-Qaeda were to come and destroy our way of life, God God is still bigger than Al-Qaeda, right? So we're going to jump into the rest of this chapter, but let me pray for us before we do that. Father, we ask you to give us a bigger vision of yourself this morning. We know, or at least we think we know, that you are bigger than our circumstances, and you're stronger than the proud, and you can help us to stand faithfully in your righteous ways. But we ask that you would expand our understanding of you today, that we would walk this life and swim in the knowledge of your glory, as though it covers the earth like waters cover the sea. Give us such a picture of you That our only reasonable response is to stand silent, awestruck at your wonders. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me outline the chapter for us briefly uh, before we jump into what it's saying. Verses 1 to 3 is this beginning. Habakkuk's waiting and then God begins his response to say, write down this vision because this is what's going to happen. So that's the first part. Verses 4 to 5 is the second part. It's kind of like a thesis statement for the whole chapter where God compares the proud or the puffed up in in the translation that that was read up front or the swelling one, that's the language I like, the swollen person, is compared and contrasted with the righteous one. The righteous one who will live by faith, as Greg read. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 6 to 20, is... These judgments, these five judgments against the proud. So five judgments or woes, as the, the text puts it, five woes. There's five characteristics of the proud, and then each characteristic of the proud has a corresponding woe attached to it. So the proud is like this, God will judge you for that. God is like this, God will judge you for that. So five woes make up the bulk of this chapter. Um, So let's begin with verses 4 to 5, and I'll read those again for us. Behold, as for the proud one, or the puffed up one, or the one who swells, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith, or his faithfulness. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Okay, so the proud one. The word here for proud, that in my version is translated proud, is really the word um, swelling or swollen or puffed up. Uh, and it's related to the Hebrew word for, get this, hemorrhoid or tumor. Um, Gives you the picture, actually, of what God sees when he sees the proud, right? It's this swollen, unnatural, disgusting thing. The proud way of life is that disgusting to God, I think, is is a good image for us. I love the poetry of this. He imagines death like this gaping mouth with an ever-expanding stomach, right? It just continues to grow. And the proud is like that. It's this mouth that wants to keep eating and filling itself up more and more and more and swells itself, right? So a proud person wants their life to be bigger and bigger and bigger, and they just get bigger. They keep wanting more stuff, they keep wanting to bring more glory to themselves. They want to uh, expand their own kingdom uh, in the world. So that's the proud. It's a great image of, of pride, right? <laughs> um, kind of disgusting. That's clearly referring to the Babylonians. That's the context of this passage. But it's interesting that it never names the Babylonians. In fact, only rarely does it name things that only the Babylonians could have done. In other words, the proud here could just as easily be the proud in Judah of Habakkuk's time. Or it could just as easily be the proud of our era. Um, And you'll see in the five characteristics of the proud how well they line up actually with us. So the proud here refers to really anyone who swells themselves, expands their own kingdom at the expense of, of others. So let's look at these five characteristics. Verses 6 to 8 I'll read for you. Will not all of these, all the nations, take up a taunt song against him, against the proud one, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Whoa. so this is this first woe, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. First characteristic of a proud or swelling person is they live off credit. Well, that hits home for awful lot of us, doesn't it? They live off credit. They, they want what they haven't earned enough to pay for. That's the first characteristic of a proud person. They build their empire on the backs of others living off credit. Okay, characteristic one. Proud person lives off credit. Characteristic two, which Greg did read for you, they build their house up high enough to protect themselves. Or they pack all their money in their 401k or they have a large home security system that protects themselves. In other words, characteristic two is a person who is all about self-protection. Not all about, but who a lot of what they are about is self-protection. They want to protect themselves. Can't think of anyone who's like that. Gosh, that could be us too, couldn't it? We're a culture who lives off credit and seeks to protect ourselves. Okay, so two characteristics. They both strike me as us. The next section, verses 12 to 14, the next characteristic of a proud person, they found their culture and their civilization on violence. And you don't actually have to look that far back in in history. The Babylonians clearly founded their entire way of life on violence. But if you look through history, actually most civilizations found their way of life on violence. Um, Babylon, clearly, but ancient Greece, Alexander's Empire, founded on violence. Ancient Rome, even the myth, the legends are that one brother kills the other. Um, the American Revolution was a war that we founded our, our nation on. The French Revolution, the Soviet Union, Hitler, any great, not any, but almost any great nation is founded on violence. So characteristic three, they establish, or they or we, establish our civilization, our kingdom, violently. Okay, still hitting home. It's Disappointing. I was hoping I wasn't so proud. Um, Characteristic four, this is verses 15 to 17. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink who mix in your venom to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. The idea here with this characteristic is someone who builds themselves up by shaming others. They bring shame to someone else so that they can glorify themselves. Kind of the ultimate and most disgusting example of this in our culture is like the date rape drugs that go around. That's kind of the worst and clearest example of this. But actually, gossip magazines are the same kind of thing. How do we shame other people to make ourselves feel better about ourselves? Again, that's not that far removed from me and my culture. So, characteristic one, live off credit. Two, we protect ourselves. Three, we establish our kingdoms violently. Four, we build ourselves up by shaming others. The fifth characteristic is verses 18 to 20, which I'll read for you here. What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. That's your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Characteristic five is worshiping idols, or really worshiping things that our hands have made. Clearly, the Babylonians worshipped idols; they had idols sitting in their living rooms and in their temples. But I think this is uh, this woe is in direct response to Habakkuk one, where Habakkuk is reminding God that the Babylonians worship their tools of war, worship their nets and their 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 tools of war. Um, That kind of hits home for some of us too, doesn't it? uh, If you didn't know this, Americans spend more money on their military than the next 20 nations combined spend on their military. In other words, we worship our tools of war. We worship our military uh, might and strength. That's us as well. In addition, uh, we worship our iPhones, don't we? And our computers and our TVs, they have place of prominence in our homes. They're have place; they always with us. My favorite, my favorite example of this is uh, my uncle, and he just got a new GPS system, and he was pretty excited about it. And my aunt is sitting next to him, and, and I think my mom and some others are sitting in the back. My aunt's sitting next to him and knows the directions to go, knows where to take the exit and where to turn, And my uncle's, no, no, I'll listen to the GPS, because it's so awesome. So he's serving the GPS and listening to the GPS at the expense of listening to his wife, right? And every time, he was driving around LA, which he wasn't used to, and every time they would come up to an exit, his wife would be like, you're supposed to take that exit, I think, you need to get over and take the exit. He's like, no, no, I'll just wait for the GPS to tell me. Well, every time they would pass an exit, the GPS was like, "Uh, you missed your exit, I forget how they say it, but... The whole time, the whole trip was spent recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. We, we want, we listen to our technology and serve it in ways that we actually don't listen to the people sitting next to us. And now we actually, interestingly, just like here, we actually literally expect our, the things that we have made to speak to us. So it's an interesting comment about uh, verse 19 here. That's actually us. We want it to teach us. So five characteristics. Live off credit. Protect themselves. Establish our kingdoms by violence. Build ourselves up by shaming others. And then we worship the works of our hands. Those are the five characteristics listed here of a proud or a swollen person. Again, clearly the Babylonians and also us. And the Babylonians do this by violence. And so let's look at at verses 8 and 17, have this refrain at the end of the verses. I'll just read it once. So, woe to you, the, the end of those verses, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and its inhabitants. In other words, yes, it's about human violence. It's also about how you're destroying God's creation. That's just as problematic in God's sight. In other words, the land is important to Yahweh. His creation, He created it good. He wants us to treat it well. When we swell ourselves at the expense of the earth, we are not fully the people that God made us to be. As humans made in God's image, and as Christians seeking to follow God's commands, we need to be aware of His creation and seek to care for it as He would care for it. Okay, so that's the proud. The proud one swells himself. He makes himself bigger. He seeks his own kingdom and does violence to others and to the earth for his own gain. Habakkuk contrasts the proud with the righteous. The righteous one who lives by faith or faithfulness. Righteousness, uh, biblically defined, is the one who is in right relationship with Yahweh. So the righteous one, the one who's in right relationship with Yahweh, will live... By faith or faithfulness the Hebrew word here for faith or faithfulness is almost certainly best translated faithfulness the New Testament writers who cite this passage Romans 1, Galatians 3 and Hebrews 10 they use a Greek word that almost certainly means faith so some of your translations will have faith and some will have faithfulness faith is based on the New Testament citations of this just for your information Either one is okay, as long as we look at what faith or faithfulness means in this context. So let's look at Hebrews, for example. So if we read Hebrews 10, verse 38, the author of Hebrews cites this verse. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And then he goes on, the, he or she, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But the author goes on to chapter 11, which is, is known as this hall of faith. So it, it names a number of people uh, from the Old Testament who, who gave their lives to faithfully following God. And, and the author lists a number of people. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, They all faithfully live their lives obedient to the God whose word is truth. Both Hebrews and Habakkuk are not talking about faith if that means belief in the God revealed in Christ that has no effect on my life. Right? That's not faith, biblically. Faith is not a get-out-of-jail-free card or fire insurance or a means to prosperity in this life. Faith biblically defined means believing and trusting God so completely that your whole way of life is fundamentally changed the list in hebrews 11 almost all of them list uh, involves suffering living faithfully means suffering so abel was killed noah endured years of shame building an ark when nobody thought it would even rain Abraham gave up his entire way of life and his family. Moses lived 40 years in the desert and then had to lead 40 years in the desert, these miserable people. Rahab gave up her entire way of life. In other words, faith involves suffering, at least typically. Jesus is the prime example. He was righteous. He was faithful. He faithfully follows the Father in everything. While the proud are swelling themselves, making themselves bigger... Jesus gives himself up. He pours out his life to death. Now that's real faithfulness, real righteousness. Here's my question for Habakkuk, though. Jesus dies. Habakkuk says the righteous will live. Isn't there a conflict there? Well, maybe I need to understand what Habakkuk means by live, I guess. It can't mean that the righteous won't suffer or die. To live cannot mean that. In fact, Jesus dies because he is faithful. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and says, Take this cup from me, the cup of wrath that you are going to pour out. Take it from me because I don't want it. I don't want to deal with that. But because I trust you, God, I will faithfully be obedient to what you've asked me to do. For Jesus' faithfulness means death. He would not have died had he not been faithful. Again, the proud are swelling themselves by doing violence. Jesus faithfully takes violence on himself. The proud do violence. The righteous take on the violence. Still the question, okay, how does that mean life? That sounds like death not so much life. Well, a biblical vision of life is not about avoiding death. That's not life. Life is about being right with God. It's life lived in full and right relationship with God. It's life lived fulfilling our ultimate purposes. It's being fully human in the way that Christ is. It's participating in God's new creation and working with him to make the world everything he created it to be. God is so much bigger than our technologies or our theologies or our politics or the little things we want or our attempts to protect ourselves. He's bigger than Al-Qaeda or the stock market or presidential election or the next iPhone or Bieber's next album or even, and I hear it's coming out later this year, even U2's next album. God is even bigger than that. And God created us for bigger things. He's making all things new. And he's inviting us to participate with him as he renews, reconciles, and redeems. God made you to be a radical and important reflection of his redemptive and sacrificial love in the world. He made you to love your neighbor into his kingdom. He made you to serve students or seniors in, in, an, in your area in ways that only you can do. He made you to reimagine what a home is and what it's for and to give hospitality to people who wouldn't receive it otherwise. He made you to give up your time and money to care for the oppressed and the disadvantaged. He made you in ways and for works of ministry that most of us can't even think about yet. And his church, he made it a place of reconciling the world to himself. He calls his church to small acts of kindness and great works of sacrificial love. He calls us to give of ourselves so that others might live, to live righteously and faithfully just like our master, Jesus. I was convicted this week as I was doing this that there's a, at least one place where I know my vision of life isn't big enough, where um, I need an expanded vision of God and, and what life counts as. And that's my neighbor who's just difficult. He's just a difficult neighbor. And in fact, the only time we see him usually is, is if he's out smoking in his car and every week he gets oxygen. So we're like, what's with that? And we hear him only when he's yelling at the TV through an open window. And God has prompted me a number of times over the last few years, Josh, you should go. You should go. And my reasons for not going are very good reasons. <laughs> I don't have time. What am I going to do with the kids? I need more time for my family. Those are not bad reasons, necessarily. But, you know, uh, I was convicted this week that God is bigger than my faithless excuses. He has already worked out a creative solution for me to do what He's called me to do. If He's calling me to do something, and He's calling me to do other things as well, He's already worked out how that, what that looks like. Just because I haven't figured it out doesn't mean that God hasn't. In other words, my lack of imagination is not a reason to neglect God's call on my life. So I would ask you to pray for me as I follow this big God in engaging with this neighbor. Off of me, back to Jesus. Jesus was faithful, he was righteous, but he died. But no one has ever lived like Jesus lived. And more than that, Jesus was raised from the dead. And he lives at the right hand of the Father. Jesus made himself small. He gave up all the glory and power of God to be a human. Glory and power of God to be a human. Not just that, a servant. To death, death on a cross. He made himself small. But you want to talk about life? How about being raised up to the right hand of the Father? And receiving the praise of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Yeah, he died. But Jesus lives. So again, the proud one swells himself, puffs himself up, makes himself big. But he will lose all of it. In the end, the one who grows his own kingdom will wind up with nothing. Jesus makes himself small and ends up with everything. Who has life in the end? The one who seeks to gain the world, or the one who stores up treasures in heaven? The one who tries to preserve her stuff, or the one who gives it away? Swelling ourselves will ultimately lead to our ruin, while sacrificing ourselves for the kingdom of God will ultimately lead to eternal, abundant life. The proud one swells himself, but as big as he is, God is bigger. Remember, we looked at five violent characteristics of the proud. They live off credit. They're self-protective. They establish their lives violently. They enjoy shaming others. And they worship what their hands have made. But God has a corresponding judgment for each of those characteristics. Credit doesn't last forever. Your creditors will eventually come and ask you for the repayment. Right? It's not going to work out for very long. There will be a day of reckoning. Self-protection. Habakkuk says, the stones of your house will cry out. In other words, it's going to fail. Your, your goal to protect yourself is a failed goal. It can't succeed. God designed the world that way so that we can't protect ourselves. We need Him. We have to rely on Him. He's the only place where we can be secure. Our home security systems are too late. Our houses will fall apart. Our 401Ks, as, as we know in the recent past, they crash. God made the world so that we would have to rely on Him. We can't protect ourselves. Three more woes. Babylon tried to glorify themselves by living violently. It's interesting that the judgment on that Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, whatever you made to glorify yourself will either go to glorify God, in other words, you won't get any glory out of that, or it will be destroyed. It will be wiped out. We'll be swimming in the knowledge of God's glory and no one will remember you. No one will remember me. We try to shame others. This is the fourth characteristic. They, they give the cup to shame someone else. Again, think of a date rape situation. Yahweh turns that cup of shame into a cup of wrath. And instead of take, he gives it back. He says, here's the cup of wrath. Now Babylon, you drink it. Proud one, you drink it. You take my wrath for what you've done and the way that you've lived. This is a reversal, right? Babylon was trying to shame others. Now they're going to receive the shame and the wrath of Yahweh. Scary. And then that fifth characteristic, we worship silent idols and, and we command them to speak. That last verse there, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. We command our idols that we've made to speak. They don't say anything. God commands... And everyone is silent. That's it. There's nothing more to say. And the Hebrew here is fantastic. It's just silence before him, all the earth. It's a command. Silence. This is obvious by now, but let me point out that this is a big God. Much bigger than the proud who try to make themselves big. God is much bigger than them. God is bringing judgment on them and the final result will be that the cup of his wrath will come against those who swell themselves such that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be so obvious it will be like waters covering the sea and all the earth will stand awestruck and silent before him. That's a big God. God is so big that he judges those who make themselves big. So in closing here, I want want you to think with me about how God brings his judgment. He will bring a final judgment and we look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and makes all things right. And he will judge sin. But God has already judged sin at the cross. And he judged it not by doing violence to others. He judged it by sending his son to take the punishment for sin. Jesus, who gave himself up Who took violence on himself, who lived a righteous and faithful life all the way to death, who sacrificed himself for our sakes, Jesus takes the cup of wrath that God had prepared for the proud. The proud ones, the swelling ones, the puffed up ones, they have earned their judgments. We have earned our judgments. And we will get them if we refuse to accept the gracious work of God accomplished at the cross. Jesus has paid for sin. It's dealt with. There is no need for us. No need for us, even the ones who live for ourselves, who have swollen ourselves. There's no need for us to drink the cup of wrath because he already did. Jesus drank the cup of wrath that I deserved that I had earned by my pride and selfishness. He took that cup for me so that he could offer to us the cup of the new covenant that we drank earlier this morning. He took that cup so he could offer us the new covenant, the cup of the new covenant in his blood. That phrase, in his blood, is significant, isn't it? He took the wrath that we deserved. He took the punishment that we earned. He took the violence of violent men. He took it on himself. So that he could extend to us a cup of love and hospitality and forgiveness and grace. The cup from which we drank this morning is offered to us because Jesus shed his blood to pay for my sin and yours. He took the wrath, and we received the gift of his blood. To me, this is the deep and astounding meaning of verse 20. God will send His own Son to take the punishment of even the proud, any who will acknowledge Christ as Lord. The idols are dumb and silent. They can't do anything to save anyone. They can't save the Babylonians. Our technology can't save us. They're not gods at all. They don't act in saving ways. Yahweh is a big God, bigger than the proud. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob acts. He works to redeem his people. But the way he acts is so surprising, so awe inspiring, such an astonishing act of love that all we can do is to kneel in reverent silence. Jesus has saved you from the death you deserved. Jesus drank the cup of wrath and offers you his grace. Jesus poured out his blood to reconcile you with God. The righteous one has paid the debt that the proud one owed. God has overcome violence and death with sacrificial love and abundant life. Silence before him, all the earth.
0: Amen.